to Radio Akbap Talk. I'm Rachna, your host. Today we're in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, to chat with Muhayo Aliyeva, the founder of Bibi Hanum, a textile company and fashion house that celebrates Adras, or Uzbeki Ikat. Adras is bold, lavish, and requires incredible skill and patience. Muhayo started Bibi Hanum in her mother's garage back in 2006. During this time, she was holding down multiple jobs to support her family, including working as a teacher and a cultural liaison at the U.S. Embassy in Tashkent. But Bibi Hanum really took off, and with Muhayo's leadership and vision, this ancient craft, which was once the favorite currency of the Silk Road, made a comeback. Muhayo's story is one I've been looking forward to hearing. It's a story of cultural expectations. It's a story of the role of women in society. And it's a story about the Silk Road, where all great textile stories begin. So please travel with me to Tashkent and let's meet Mohayo. Sabaydi Mohayo, welcome to Radio Okpap Talk. How are you today? Hi, Rashna. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we're doing very well. Thank you. So Mohayo, I wanted to ask you about... Bibi Hanum. Um, you began your career as a teacher, I read, and then you also worked at the U.S. Embassy in Tashkent. What inspired you to start a textile company? So I was uh, quite drawn to arts and fashion, um, and my dad uh, um, was uh, my inspiration. He was an enter- entrepreneur, and he was very um, well-educated, and uh, so I always wanted to uh, be, li- be like my dad. And um, so I went uh, to learn languages. I, I studied English and I wanted to learn Arabic. And so my, my dad wanted me to go and learn English um, uh, deeper so, you know, I could use it. Uh, so it's used in worldwide. And so he was my biggest advisor. So, so I went uh, to to learn uh, languages, and I, uh, you know, I went to the United States as an exchange student. It was mm-hmm. a big achievement at that time. It was very new, and you know, we were. Uh, I was an Uzbek girl uh, from a traditional family. Um, you know, <laughs> to 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 let me go to the United States to study by myself. Uh, you know, I was like seventeen or eighteen years old. It was very um, uh, how to say uh, big decision for my parents to let me go. Um, you know, my my relatives were really uh, against it, and my father was very open minded and liberal, so he let me go. Actually, before going to the States, I, I studied at the University of World Languages, and I had a friend who um, uh, was a Peace Corps volunteer. Uh, her name was uh, Jennifer. So we mm-hmm. became really good friends. She was like my sister. She would stay in our house. So, you know, we, we, we really looked after her. Um, you know, she, she was quite lonely. And uh, I remember we used to make even clothes for, for her from, for, with my sister uh, out of Atlas. It was a very traditional um, uh, fabric of that time. I, I remember that, you know, we were making clothes at that time. Uh, it kind of was part of our life. And uh, we remember, I remember that my sister and I would serve our neighbors and uh, would make uh, clothes for them. They would order I, I would make some designs and she would uh, create them. 
So my father would look at us and say, you know, we, um, I, I'm going to open you a workshop at some time, at some point, so you guys can do some business, you know. The role of women in Uzbek society can be fraught. The bias against women has been upheld by the culture and overlooked by the government. In the post-Soviet era, the new Uzbeki government did extend equal rights to women. However, inside family units, women's status remains largely unchanged. When Muhayo started Bibi Hanum, extending opportunities to women was a priority. Bibi Hanum currently provides women jobs as seamstresses, weavers, and embroiderers in Fergana Valley, Tashkent, and the Novoi region. In spite of her efforts, Muhayo concedes that women's empowerment remains an uphill battle. Why was women's involvement so important when you began your work? And um, what is the status of women in Uzbek society and economy? What, what made you kind of, um, the idea of uh, not only focusing on Atlas, but also supporting women. Why was this so important? From the beginning, uh, when I started Bibi Hanum, uh, the focus was really about making clothes and you know serving customers, and uh, really didn't. I it was kind of automatic that you know women were supposed to be involved at the same time. But you know the the socially responsible aspect of Bibi Hanum came uh, along because you know I I have. Uh, grown with women who really had a lot of difficulties in their lives. I have seen many of them. Uh, some of my, some of them are my sisters, and I also have sister-in-laws. I mean, they all went through similar issues with in their in their home families. Uh, you know, it had to do with the in general. You know, women are. Um, even, by, even though by constitution women and men have equal rights in Uzbekistan, uh, Uzbekistan still remains as a male-dominant country, and uh, you know women still occupy secondary uh, status in the society. Uh, so you know, people, women uh, get married early, um, and uh, you know. Parents are, it's in parents' interest to, get to, to marry their daughters as soon as possible when they reach the, you know, uh, that age. Uh, and sometimes, you know, um, early marriage and incomplete education usually brings to um, such results where they are stuck at home as housewives and, you know, uh, they don't know what to do. They're more dependent on their families, on their husbands. Uh, so it kind of continues and they don't know how to get out, uh, you know, if they don't have the proper education, if they don't know how to survive independently, um, sometimes they just have to be stuck with the problems that they may, the, they may face, such as like, you know, domestic abuse, uh, violence, um, those kind of issues unfortunately exist. And I'm, I'm sure it's not only in Uzbekistan, I'm sure it exists in many countries, uh, worldwide and, um, it's an ongoing issue. So, and poop, here in Uzbekistan, people, uh, women, um, um, have uh, equal rights, but you know they 
it's more of a I think it's the um, it's the way how they are brought up to be more obedient uh, to be patient it's part of the life and you know you have kids you don't want to shame your kids in the future so they you know they don't want to divorce just because you know they're um, all of these circumstances are there um, and so they're pretty much stuck in their family problems so um, my, when, when I actually uh, saw all of those uh, issues that women were going through, um, you know, I said, when I was not married, I, I, I actually got, became witness of that. And I said, you know, I don't want to uh, have such life because, you know, I, I, I actually had that, you know, mentality where, you know, I, I really want to be free. Uh, you know, I want to do what I want to do. But at the same time, um, I, I wanted to get married. I wanted to have a good family, but my family is going to be peaceful uh, I, um, I suppose I, I don't want to go through such problems. It was very hard to see. But I also wanted to help my, my, all those women who were surrounded, whom I was surrounded with. So I said, you know, maybe uh, a company like this would actually help such women who could come. You know, part of the problem usually is financials. Uh, lack right. of uh, money usually is the main, um, what do you call, reason where the problems arise. At the same time, I think the lack of education and unemployment also brings to such uh, problems, I think, because, you know, when you tend to sit at home, uh, I think anybody can go crazy. <laughs> there's uh, economic issues, there's sort of a social, cultural legacy of having a certain role to play in society. And so you kind of grow up assuming that you will fill that role. And unless there's an availability of an option, you know, I think that similarly, like I am Indian and this is, this is something we see in India a lot as, and as you said, in many countries where women um, find themselves stuck for lack of a better word in, in a systematic situation and when companies like Bibi Hanum and other companies that sort of empower women, uh, provide women with skills, provide education and provide, you know, coaching, it, it gives women the understanding that there's another option, you know. And, um, and so I think that's great. Um, has, has your work influenced other organizations or companies within Uzbekistan to to kind of follow a similar approach? I'm not very sure um, because, you know, the topic is not very active in, in Uzbekistan. Right. This, unfortunately, uh, very little... Um, you won't actually see this uh, being talked on television or, you know, you don't see it on newspapers. It's not an active topic. I mean, there's no one uh, who can actually bring it up uh, to motivate such leaders to, to actually pay attention to this aspect. It's quite an um, important topic, but unfortunately, uh, it is very secondary uh, in our country. It's interesting we focus on women, on empowering women, on educating women, um, on providing opportunities, boosting confidence, um, you know, 
demonstrating that there are options beyond. And yet, I feel like it's really, you know, the system and systems controlled by men that are sometimes the big problem. And we don't put equal stress on like, well, you guys need to change too, you know, like that perspective has to change because we can empower all we want, but if there's still obstacles placed by um, the head of families or the head of governments or what have you, you know, it becomes very difficult and uh, it becomes very confrontational too. Yeah, you're completely right. And, you know, when, when in extreme situations, you know, uh, you tend to... Uh, bring it up to up to police level you know you you but then you know uh, no one no one nobody gets punished mm-hmm. uh, somehow they get away with it and you know you life goes back to the same uh, normalcy it's just uh, doesn't uh, it it may change a, li- a little bit but you know it doesn't really uh, make a big impact because when when you don't punish um, it, they know they can get away with it. That's why right. I don't think right. the issue will. Uh, I think the issue will continue. Yeah, I mean, there definitely has to be sort of a consequence. We don't and, have a law, you know, then, that yeah. uh, actually uh, would punish um, husbands or men who abuse women. I don't think there's a law. Um, that's mm-hmm. probably why. They don't know what to do with it, I guess. See, I didn't I didn't think we'd get into anything controversial, but then here we are. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, okay. <laughs> One thing that I found really interesting was that, you know, ICAT um, evolved somewhat independently in many parts of the world. And it the word ICAT comes from the Malay word to tie. And in Uzbek in Uzbeki it's called Adras, which means cloud, correct? Yep. And um, so on the one hand, the Malay word ikat refers to the process, which is like the method of tying and binding in order to die. And the Uzbeki word evokes kind of the finished work, which is the ethereal quality of ikat, which is both defined and ambiguous, like floating or seeping through the fabric, kind of like clouds drifting through the sky. And I love this um, sort of fascinating, um, contrasting, yet very true and authentic naming, you know, and and the idea that even though techniques develop and evolve independently, you can see how culture and natural geography um, influence the craft. And I was wondering, like, how did, you know, how does Adras um, uh, manifest itself in Uzbek society? How does it how do people wear it? Uh, what What is the symbolic value of it? Well, Adras historically uh, had played a significant role in the economy and social life of people. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, the robes uh, were presented as gifts to honor the people. Uh, you know, gift of clothing was real transfer of wealth. And the more robes you had, the wealthier you would be considered. So Mm -hmm. the cuts and shapes would identify the status of the person, whether, you know, the lady was married or had children. 
So, it, you know, it was um, women's uh, robes cuts were indistinguishable from men's robes. It, you know, only colors and sizes would really distinguish the, um, the owner. Uh, in poorer families, men and women could actually share their um, robes uh, if they wanted to go out of the house. So it's really interesting. Like, you know, I, um, I had so much fun researching uh, Adras and, you know, when I was reading up on Bibi Hanum and listening to your talks that you've given at the Smithsonian and and also just you know various articles written about Bibi Hanum but then I kind of went back further and looked at um, the role of Adras in in Uzbekistan and you know beginning with like you said you know during the Silk Road era it was such a huge commodity it was a form of currency because it was so lavish and because it was so beautiful and this like you know luscious silk and it, it really was rooted in kind of a nomadic culture and nomadic lifestyle where people um, you know men and women wore similar tunics you know ease of movement lots of fabric um, you know signified more wealth and and it was you know traded heavily up and down the silk road and and then um, then the other really influencing factor was was the um, advent of Islam and how that influenced motifs and brought, bringing in nature and uh, geometric designs and um, and I thought that was like really fascinating too and and then of course as you mentioned the last kind of or I should say the next to previous because the current situation is the revival but but prior to the revival it was kind of the Russian invasion in the um, in the 1800s and then the later the Soviet era came and there was the collectivization of all the artisans. Everybody was in a factory. There was, you know, forced cotton farming. And, um, and all this really eroded um, the traditions and, and kind of forced the handful of people who knew how to do this craft underground. And... Um, and thank goodness that somebody was doing them. So, so when you came along, <laughs> so when you came along and opened your atelier, and you decided, like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to design, and and um, you know, with my sort of women, my company of women, uh, help revitalize uh, this craft in our society. How did you find skilled artisans? Um, how did you go about? looking for them and, and then having them agree to work with you? Um, well, uh, let me actually tell you how I actually got into it first, uh, how okay. I got really <laughs> excited about it and how I decided to go into it. Um, actually, when I was... Um, traveling and I was like I said I actually traveled with um, textile specialists and I actually learned a lot about uh, ikat uh, from them because they would be writing professional articles uh, scholarly articles for museums for publications and I actually got acquainted with the with those publications and uh, uh, it was amazing that um, 
our textiles had so much history, had so much um, beauty and uh, so much labor, um, so, so complicated processes that I actually read that our textiles had. Also, um, when I uh, came across with exhibitions where uh, our traditional kaftans, the ropes, chapons we call, um, they were collected by um, collectors, uh, textile collectors, and they were taken out abroad, uh, and they were put, uh, they were sold to museums, they were beautifully displayed. Um, in fact, uh, you can't find those robes in our country anymore, unless few pieces in the in the museums. Uh, so they they are all out. So when I saw those beautiful robes in in those old adras um, in the, in beautiful cuts that uh, from that time, uh, I was so um, I'd say uh, admiring uh, our own textiles, and I said, "How come we don't have them in our own country? Why can't we bring it back? Why can't we actually?" admire these textiles as as much as all those foreigners, all those people um, are admiring. Why can't we bring the respect of this fabric uh, back? Uh, because at that time, um, Adras was actually very being neglected. People were not wearing them. Uh, you know, they would look at it as, um, you know, some piece of... Uh, dowry uh, fabric or let's say maybe a wedding outfit one-time disposable outfit uh, people uh, would not wear it as fashionable um, I would say garment mm -hmm. so I said why can't we bring it back to life so people can actually uh, look at it with uh, uh, revere it and uh, 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 really want to buy it and wear it like you know you really want to buy a designer uh, clothes mm -hmm. uh, so that's uh, the kind of attitude I wanted to have uh, in, in women so I said uh, to um, I didn't have enough money at that time because they're very expensive uh, to uh, the production process is, is, is complicated and it's very expensive so I applied for a grant uh, to revive um, a number of coats, traditional coats and traditional fabrics. So I won the grant, um, and uh, it was um, a big stepping stone. We, uh, I went, uh, I advised with my uh, um, uh, friend uh, who was a textile. Um, uh, specialist who wrote scholarly articles uh, for the magazines. Uh, she knew those people who actually kept uh, the uh, the old artisans who knew the uh, the weaving processes and who were actually practicing it um, in Fergana Valley. Uh, I even went with her to do some workshops. Um, in Fergana Valley, and that's where I got acquainted with them. And um, so when I opened my atelier, uh, I actually got into a couple of those artisans, uh, and uh, we discussed about possibilities of doing the fabrics. And so um, they helped. Uh, we worked together, and it worked. Um, so it was... Uh, 
I think very successful project that we did together and ever since then um, you know after those uh, we we photographed those beautiful uh, robes um, and I applied to Santa Fe Folk Art Market at that time and Folk Art Market was also very uh, competitive uh, you couldn't get in unless you are an authentic artist uh, and they do they have a big jury system who was uh, consisting of textile uh, specialists so they looked at our uh, work and uh, immediately we got accepted and um, Ever since then, uh, we participate in the in uh, in the far, in the market every year. Um, we meet our potential customers there. Uh, it has been going on. The ball went uh, rolling then. <laughs> so uh, now we're. Um, I think we, we've done a lot to revive the fabrics and you know we we brought it back to life and i hope it won't go back <laughs> you know because this current situation is just we will talk about that <laughs> you know you said you didn't want to talk too much about the pandemic but i i think we're all really curious like can you give us an idea of what is going on in tashkent where you live and also in fergana valley among the artisan communities you work with uh, well um i think uh, we haven't been able to avoid it. Uh, it's, it. It is worldwide. We're part of it. Um, unfortunately, uh, we've been shut down for uh, several months. Um, literally, all artisan businesses were shut down. Uh, we were shut down. Only grocery stores were open. Um, big and small businesses, everybody were um, just forced to stay at home. Um, we unfortunately have lost a lot. Um, some people lost their um, relatives. I mean, unfortunately, that happened uh, with older elderly generation. Um, but it hasn't uh, directly affected um, our um, women. Our everybody is healthy. Thank, thank, uh, thank goodness. Thank, thank goodness. Allah, we're um, doing okay. Uh, it has affected our business because we were dependent on our international trade. Uh, we were dependent mm -hmm. on our tourism. We had many, many groups visiting our workshop. Um, it was planned in advance. Uh, so all of those uh, group visits were canceled. Uh, we literally had no sales uh, in, in our workshop. Uh, we... Um, just few online orders. Uh, luckily, we have our online shop, bbhanum.com. Uh, uh, we were able to get some um, uh, support through our uh, online shop and just a few our um, customers who are still doing uh, business with us um, in the States. Um, so they... That's how we have been surviving. Otherwise, I, I don't know what uh, we would have done. Um, unfortunately, we're not doing new designs uh, in terms of fabric designs because it's quite an expensive um, procedure. Uh, our artisans have also been uh, paused. They're, they're also not working. And uh, I cannot provide them as many orders that I used to. 
Um, mm -hmm. So it has only if embroiders have been doing some of our work. Um, that's how uh, we have been doing, and, and that's very unfortunate. Yeah, and it's quite, you know, your story is, um, is very similar to many places. And, you know, for us, it's also been, been um, exactly like that, you know, with tourism at a complete standstill. We don't have, you know, like any opportunity for on-site sales and we have to go digital and we're not really able. I mean, you know, we, we just hadn't planned to do it. And so it's like all of us have had to kind of try new things and um, reach people in different ways. And, and I think so much of kind of traditional craft um, like uh, Adras and like the weaving in, uh, in Luang Prabang, it's so much about stories and about people meeting each other and, and connecting, you know. And so when that goes away, then it's like we're, we're even more isolated, I think. I mean, I read somewhere that 80% of uh, your production is exported and, and you've done a remarkable job kind of catering to your customers in the Middle East, let's say, to Europe and the US by really understanding and anticipating their needs and their style and accommodating. Um, and then 20% roughly is sold in country. Um, has the pandemic made you reconsider this ratio? Um, are you sort of focusing on the local market maybe a little more? Actually, yes. Um, it, it really inevitably uh, forced us to rethink of, of, of this ratio because uh, even online, uh, you know, our exports um, are not as much as we used to. So uh, even locally, people don't have money to buy expensive addresses. Um, they are focusing on buying like really first, um, uh, first hand needed um necessary items like you know <laughs> uh, you're sitting at home what are you going to do you wear um, uh, something beautiful in at home i was i actually came up with a new brand uh, i'm i'm developing we're launching that new brand soon uh, which will be focused to local market uh, which will be offering uh, people uh, premium quality cotton um, garments and uh, nightwear uh, for uh, women, um, possibly for kids and maybe for men, like pajamas at, and also like beautiful shirts and tunics and dresses, those kind of things. We're uh, actually making a plan of that. We're actually creating some samples and hopefully we'll be uh, launching that um, uh, brand and introduce it to our local customers. The history of Uzbekistan is inseparable from the history of the Silk Road. The Silk Road embodies adventure and ambition. It was a thoroughfare that enabled the exchange of ideas, values, skills, and even diseases. The eastern and western branches of the Silk Road crossed in Uzbekistan. Bukhara, Samarkand, and the Fergana Valley were for a time the epicenter of global trade. In the Middle Ages, traffic on the Silk Road slowed down as more traders took to the high seas. 
the Soviet era further eroded Uzbekistan's presence as the center of trade. With Bibi Hanum and a growing interest in Adras, Fergana Valley is once again buzzing. No doubt the current pandemic will leave its imprint. But I'm curious how Muhayo views the legacy of the Silk Road in her country and in her work. Let's hear what she says. Uh, you know, we learned how to make silk from China, uh, probably through the people who came through the Silk Road. And right. cut production and the economy flourished at that time. And I think uh, in the modern world, um, you know, development of tourism and creating, you know, favorable international trade conditions would provide us great opportunities um, to develop uh, and continue our craft. It would be a great um, um opportunity for all the artisans, I think. Um, but I'm not sure how it actually works. It's really, uh, I guess it's uh, between the countries. It's really political. You know, you want to open borders to some countries. You don't want to open border for other countries. It's just really um, is, um, I think, politically uh, depends on, uh, on, on our uh, government people, I suppose. And when, when we actually travel uh, to all these trade shows, I meet all these other uh, artisans from different parts of the world. Which, you know, if I didn't have that opportunity, I would have not un- understand how, you know, metal jewelry is made in Africa or how Im- Indian embroidery is made or, you know, Mexican uh, embroideries. I would have never actually understand those uh, things with with all those friends that I meet uh, during those trade shows it just uh, brings uh, even more ideas to the work that we do I'm sure our work uh, brings more ideas to other people it's a great idea exchange I think your craft flourishes it just develops uh, there's many 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 positive aspects uh, to, um, to doing open uh, trade internationally. Uh, I'm 100% uh, in favor of that. But it's it's for the disease. I think uh, these things are inevitable. Uh, Diseases have existed uh, before and they will exist and there's nothing we can do. It's inevitable. Like this COVID-19 is a good example. Uh, mm-hmm. Even shutting the borders did not help. I mean, it got in somehow, you know. It was already there before the, sh- the, the borders were shut. You know, if it has to enter the country, it will enter the country. I mean, there's not much we can do, and I think it's all in God's hands. And that brings us to the end of another episode. As I mentioned before, while I was reading up on Adras, I was mesmerized by this incredible craft. If you have time and inclination, please check out Bibi Hanum's website where you'll see step-by-step videos on how Adras is made. Since I was a teenager, I've dreamed of traveling the Silk Road through Central Asia, making my way through Samarkand, Fergana Valley, Bukhara, and collecting textiles along the way. After speaking with Muhayo, I'm even more determined to go. I'd like to thank Muhayo for taking time to speak with us. She has a young toddler and is in the midst of starting Kanyo, her new brand. The details haven't been published yet, but please check the Bibi Hanum website for further updates. Thank you everyone for listening in and we'll connect again next week. Kapchai lalai!